open, if you would, to the book of Acts chapter 15, Acts 15. So we've been in a series uh, looking uh, throughout the entire book of Acts. We started, obviously, chapter 1. It was a long time ago. We've been making our way through. We are now halfway through this great uh, book. And what we're at right now in the chapter is kind of set the stage a little bit. Uh, we started chapter 15 last week. We only got about 11 verses or so into it. And then uh, we kind of pause and we're going to kind of pick up. Today's kind of a 2.0, uh, though it is a standalone message in and of itself. And what I want to call today is accepted by God because this tries to answer the question as to what does it mean or what does it look like, I should say more specifically, to be accepted by God. What does that look like? And to kind of set the stage or build the backdrop as to what we've been looking at so far is we've been identifying the fact that when the early church, these early community of Christians, so think about the book of Acts as like a history book, which it is, it's a story about the early church as it began to grow. And it wasn't just growing numerically, though it was that, but it was growing into, in terms of its, its breadth. It was growing in terms of its location. So that today, for example, if you were to look on a map and try to determine where Christianity predominantly is focused, uh, there's not really any particular uh, nation on earth where it's like, I mean, I would say Christianity is a global religion. It's all over the place in every country, every continent, all around the world, unlike some other religions where it might have a more localized uh, uh, focal point. Um, Islam, for example, being predominantly throughout the Middle East and other parts of Asia, and so on and so forth, you get the idea. But the point that I'd make is that Christianity was beginning to spread. And it was moving from a religion or a community that was predominantly uh, focused within a people group of Jews and uh, people that were from that background to spreading out into a community of people that were non-Jewish. And so the big question that was basically being wrestled with and asked as we looked at this last week is it kind of created a controversy. And the controversy that was beginning to be wrestled through was this question, what do we do, the early church, the early questions we're asking, what do we do with these non-Jewish people that are traditionally uh, very, very different than us? Because if you know anything about Jewish history or Jewish culture, you know that they live very distinct lives. They eat a certain type of food. They actually call it kosher. They dress certain ways. In fact, if you go throughout parts of Manhattan, especially Orthodox Jews, they'll dress in certain ways. I have had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land several times. One of the things that's really fascinating is to notice the various types of hats that uh, some of the Orthodox Jews wear. Some of the hats, and one of the things I noticed is that a lot of them wear different hats. I remember asking our tour guide, like, why do these uh, Orthodox Jews have so many distinct versions of very similar type style of a hat, but, but there's nuances to it. And I remember him telling me, he said, well, the type of hat they have is based upon whatever type of uh, rabbi they actually follow. So if they follow a certain rabbi, then they have a hat that looks very similar, big black top hat with a certain, you know, lace or bow around it, whatever. And uh, it's very distinct. So the point is that you can look at Jewish people historically and traditionally realize they're very distinct from the bigger, broader culture at large. Unless you're mad at Yahoo, which you still have some very similar, distinct, telltale signs that you are still Jewish. But the point that I would make is this, okay? So as Christianity began to spread, uh, you had all of these non-Jewish people coming in that did not have the customs of Judaism. They didn't eat the same type of food. In fact, the foods that they did eat were offensive to the Jews that were part of the community. Does that make sense? 
So the big question was, how do we treat these outsiders that are now becoming to become, uh, become part of the inside community of what we would call Christianity? How do we treat these people? And so the big controversy is, uh, among some, they were suggesting we need to make them become Jewish, traditionally, culturally. They need to predominantly get this surgical procedure done called circumcision. If you have no idea what that is, Wikipedia, and it will give you a good explanation. But the point that I'd make is this, is that this was the big cultural question they were wrestling with. How do we treat these non-Jewish outside people that are now becoming part of this community of Jesus' people? How do we treat them? Do we accept them? Do we make them go through certain hoops? Do we make them live according to certain traditions? Do we make them eat certain foods or avoid certain foods or dress a certain way or have certain surgical procedures done upon their bodies in order for them to be accepted? So what we looked at is that there was a clarification that was coming forth from the, uh, from the Christian church to begin to address how we treat these people. And this kind of led into us trying to understand. There's like three questions that Peter uh, begins to try to address and answer. And these are the three questions. Let's go through them real quick. The first two, obviously, were ones that we looked at last week. I'm not going to go through them again. Uh, if you would like, just download the message online, calvarysolo.com. Information's right there. But the first question they sought to address was, who is accepted by God? Like, who actually are the right people to be accepted by God? What, pre, you know, what, what, what people group uh, does God actually accept? The second question was, what must be done to be accepted? So the question here was more of preconditions. What are the preconditions that have to be set in motion or set in play in order for that person to be accepted by God? Do they have to pay a certain amount of money? Do they have to dress a certain way? Do they have to have a surgical procedure done? What are the preconditions for a certain group of people to be acceptable or accepted by God? Third question that we hinted at last week, which we will now tackle today, is this question of what does acceptance by God look like? What, what does it look like? If you are finally accepted by God, if God has accepted you, he's brought you in, what does that look like? What are the benefits? What does it bring back into you? What are the ways in which you are, here's Christian terminology, you are blessed by God? What does it look like? What does it mean to basically receive this gift of acceptance by God? First of all, as we begin to jump into this, I want to think about something really profound about this. Because the concept of acceptance is really important in our culture. I mean, I would say that if you were to begin to look at kind of the substructure of your life, what makes you tick? At the heart of who you are is sort of this drive to be accepted. You want to be accepted. We as human beings want to be accepted by somebody, by some group some segment, some economic system, some party, somebody we want to be accepted, or a parent, or a mom, or somebody. And one of the ways in which we know that we are, we, we, we are driven according to that is because when you are rejected, how profoundly impacting does that happen? Uh, does that have an effect upon your life? When we feel rejected by the very people we hope to be accepted by, that's devastating. Whether it be a child feeling rejected by his parent, or whether it be a spouse feeling rejected by their spouse, uh, or a person part of a church feeling rejected by a leadership there, rejection is radically immobilizing and destructive. So what I would suggest is at the very heart of who we are as human beings, this literally plays into who we are as people. We want to be accepted. And the gospel itself actually addresses the very issue of what acceptance is all about. 
And what does it mean to be accepted by God? What does it play into? How, what, begins to uh, what does it look like for you to actually be accepted by God? That's what I want to begin to take a look at. And so Peter begins to lay out to this community of people is in, in the context, again, chapter 15 is a theological debate, uh, it's, and it's not yawn-worthy. It's actually a really important, very significant theological debate that needed to happen in order to lay out the groundwork in terms of the future of how is this Christian uh, religion, how is this community of faith that follow Jesus, how, what type of shape are they going to have for the generations to come? And I mentioned this last week, that if this uh, debate did not happen, if they just simply gave in or caved into the presuppositions from this other elite uh, sect within Christianity that was saying, you have to circumcise these outsiders, then Christianity today would look very different than what it is currently right now. Again, like I said last week, I hinted at that if, if this debate did not happen, uh, the way that you come to faith in Jesus, the way that you're accepted as a part of the community of Jesus' people would look vastly different, especially if you're a guy. You would be circumcised as a precondition in order to be accepted. That's vastly different than just saying, pray a prayer with me to receive Jesus as your Savior. It would be, pray a prayer with me to receive Jesus as your Savior, and uh, here's a knife, and we're going to do a procedure on you. You're like, whoa, no, you're not. But that's how the church would be different. So that being said, what does acceptance by God Look like. I want to begin to dig, dig in and take a look at this. Peter actually begins to address this. There's three things we'll take a look at. So one, it looks like this. Verse eight, it looks like receiving the Holy Spirit. So I'll just go through these. First of all, it looks like receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, what Peter's going to say for us, or say to us, is in verse eight, he says, "And God, He gave them that's uh, these Gentile people, non-Jewish people, non-traditional Jewish people, people that were not kosher." people that did not live according to the Mosaic law, people that did not dress the way good Jewish people dress. These were non-traditional, non-Jewish, non-Bible-believing, non-Torah-following believers that had just simply loved Jesus. You guys following so far? So what Peter says is he's referencing the fact that in chapter 10... There's this group of uh, Gentiles under the house of a guy by the name of Cornelius. You can read on your own time. Uh, He receives Jesus, and he begins to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is doing is he's referencing that. He's basically saying that I I was just as shocked as you guys are, but God accepted him just as he accepted us on the day of Pentecost. And God demonstrated his acceptance to them, just as he's demonstrated his acceptance of us, in that we have received the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's very presence has come into taking up residency with inside of us. Now, if you're Jewish, this is really significant to think about this. In the first century, if you're Jewish, living in the way that you would talk about the Holy Spirit, one of the very first things that you would have in the back of your mind would be Genesis chapter 1, all right? In the beginning, is where the book of Genesis begins. In the beginning, it says God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to say, and the spirit of God was brooding over the face of the deep. So the image of the opening chapter in the book of Genesis is God, God Yahweh creating all things, and then God's presence, God's spirit. The actual Hebrew language or word for that is ruach HaKodesh, Ruach meaning spirit or breath. It can be translated in a lot of different ways. Uh, Wind or breeze. Uh, These are all the different ways to think about the concept of the word Ruach. Uh, 
Hakodesh means holy or sanctified or set apart, something that is uniquely distinct or different than anything else. So what marks this breath or wind or breeze as distinct from anything else is that it's holy. It's, it belongs to Yahweh himself. So what's so important about the Ruach HaKodesh, the holy breath or life of God, is in the opening chapters of Genesis chapter 1, is that this Ruach HaKodesh was breathing life into the lifeless planet which God has created. That God was literally animating, bringing to life all that which is just there. That's the implication. That's the idea. You carry that image throughout the entire Old Testament. Uh, there are these hints in the prophets, guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah and others that hinted that one day, maybe God's animating presence, God's animating force, God's animating personality, all right? It's not just a force. Uh, it does uh, issue forth in force, but it's not impersonal. The Holy Spirit is personal. It's, it's a, he's a person, and this idea of God's presence will one day come within his people. And what will it do when it comes to people? It will do exactly what it did over creation. It will remake. It will make literally all things new. So why is this a big deal? Why is the idea, the gift of the Holy Spirit, a big deal? Because it means that the very life force, the very breath, the very animating power and life of God is not out there but in you, remaking you, reshaping you, causing you to reimagine what life could be like under the government of God, under the leadership of God. Why is this so important? Because at the end of the day, again, many of us, in the quest to try to find a place of belonging, we are looking for things that somehow will animate us, that will give us life. We're desperately on this quest, on this search, looking for something, whether it be found in a relationship or a job, or an app download, or whatever. Something that somehow, that if we give our hearts to it, give our energy to it, then somehow it will then give us back life. And here's the problem with that. There's a problem with that. Is that everything else in this world that we give our attention, our, our energy over towards, at some point, no matter what type of animating force it may have in our life, every last bit of it has an expiration date. Every last bit of it. At some point, it will die, it will stop, it will corrode, it will deform, it will, it will go off the track. At some point, it will fail us and let us down. This is one of the reasons why uh, God describes the life that he gives by way of the Holy Spirit in this word. Ready for it? Eternal. It's eternal. That's distinct from temporal. Right? Radically different from Oh, this has an expiration date. God is saying there's no expiration date on the life that I give. It's eternal. It doesn't die. It doesn't stop. It doesn't finish. It never ends. It always keeps going on and on for all eternity. It is from me, through me, sourced in me for you. And God says it's my gift. Let's just listen to this passage again. Peter says this. He says this in verse 8, and God gave them the Holy Spirit. Hold on to that word gave. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, he has put his seal on us and he has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That phrase, the word given, just think about that. That this is something that God has given. 
He didn't charge us for it. He didn't ask us to sign up for it. He gave it to us. Just pause and think about this. You and I, I think we're wired to want good gifts. At least I am. I like good gifts. When, especially gifts that are from thoughtful people, people that spend time and energy. It doesn't have to be expensive. But if somebody spends time and invests energy and thoughtfulness into something and they give it to you, that, there's, there's meaning in that. There's power in that. There's something beautiful about that. Gifts are, are, are something that you and I thrive on. When somebody takes the time to give those things to us, uh, we come to life. It gives us some sense of uh, uh, a privilege. We feel loved. We feel appreciated when gifts are oftentimes given to us. But here's the thing. What type of people give gifts? Uh, generous people that give gifts. Those are the type of people we want to be around, right? We want to hang around those people. Perhaps maybe we want to be like those people, even though we might look at ourselves and be like, I can never be like that person because they're so kind and so generous. But there are things that we admire about those people. So I want you to think about this because this is the way the scripture is forming our mind to think about God, that he is a God that gives, not with measured gifts, but he gives immeasurably of his very presence that animates us. It's eternal. There's no end. What type of God gives in this type of capacity, this type of way? A good God. So I want you to pause and think about this. Whatever type of image or picture or way which your mind imagines God is, let me just ask you, does the way that you imagine and envision God to be or God is, does it match with, does it synchronize with this concept of God being a good giver? And if it doesn't, here's where I would, I would gently, lovingly, humbly ask you to erase those past images, past imaginations, and replace it with, the, with what Scripture says. Allow the scripture in God's revelation of himself to reinform, to reignite, to cause you to reimagine who God is. Because this is who he is. This is what Paul, Peter, the New Testament writers are wanting us to see about who God is. That he's a God that gives his Holy Spirit, his very animating life force in our heart to remake us, to reshape us, to redesign us, to reorient our hearts, our desires, our life to become one with his, to become like him. This is who God is. So the first thing that we see of what it means to be accepted by God, uh, what does acceptance by God look like? It looks like receiving the Holy Spirit. The second thing I want to take a look at is it also looks like forgiveness. Forgiveness. Verse 9, he goes on, Peter states, he says, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So again, I could just kind of ask the question, what's the precondition by which God cleanses our hearts, all right? Um, so we'll just take a look at that word. Uh, does it come by way of money? Do we like pay? Is there a transaction that happens? God hears 50,000 bucks and God says you're clean. It's like a car wash, like a soul wash. God washes your soul in exchange for some sort of goods or service. No, not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. He says uh, he has cleansed their hearts through, by way of, via faith. Again, just think of faith in a simplistic idea of, of trust of a little child and, and of the parent. That's what faith is. That's what he's describing. Jesus even gives analogies of this throughout the New Testament. That unless you have faith like a child, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. Because oftentimes us as human beings, we're looking for ways to transact with God. It's one of the reasons why our Christianity, I think sometimes if you ever find yourself in a place where it's, it's, it's not on fire, the opposite is it might be really cold, because many of us tend to treat our Christian 
our experience with God is like a transaction. We're constantly making deals with God. God, I'll do this. And if I do this, will you give me this? And it doesn't happen. We get upset with God. We get frustrated. God let us down. It's because you're treating God on a transactional level. God's not a, God's not a bid. He's, he's, not, he's not someone that you work with uh, out deals. He's a father. He's a father that loves us. He's a father that gives his animating life force in our hearts to cause our hearts to come to life. And secondly, we see with regard to that, he's a God that actually, by way of faith, cleanses our hearts. This is actually a really great word. He says, having cleansed their hearts by faith. The actual Greek word that's used there, we get our English word catharsis from. If you, don't, if you know anything about what catharsis is, if you were to be going through a tough time in your life and have all sorts of baggage or past hurt or pain or difficulties or challenges, you sit down with a counselor and you just kind of you regurgitate it all. You're like, I, this happened to me and that took place and I feel this pain and this, I had this regret and this shame and this guilt. That, that, you would walk away from that and they would say, you, you've, you've purged yourself. You've uh, it was cathartic. The idea is that somehow there was a process by which you felt like you were able to remove or lessen the effects of this, this, uh, this, this impact of, of, of some sort of stain on your soul. But here's what Christianity is about. It's not necessarily about, con- I mean, there is a confession of our transgressions. Uh, but what we see first and foremost, it's about God doing something whereby he cleanses our soul. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in verse uh, 14 of chapter 9. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience? The word purge is such a great word. It's like this idea that it it was there. Whatever this this stain, this guilt, this nastiness, this funk, whatever it was, it was there. But Jesus purged it, lifted it, took it out. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22 says, having purified your soul's by the obedience to the truth. Now think about that, purification of soul. That's a pretty big mouthful of words right there. Purification of your soul. But think about this. You and I as human beings, we do stuff, right? We do stuff that we regret. And not one person here is 100% a victim. I mean, we are, here's the thing, the way humanity works is that we have been victimized and yet we oftentimes are victimizers. We have been sinned against, and we have sinned against others. In other words, the stain, the nastiness, the funk that has come upon us, that has stained us, the Bible's word for that is defiled, that has defiled us, that has left us feeling nasty and funky inside, that we have taken that funkiness and nastiness, and we have turned it outward upon other people, and we've defiled and hurt and wounded and ruined other people. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. It leaves our world filled with this funkiness, this disgustingness, this defilement, this brokenness that we look at in the news and we're like, I wish we lived in a better world. I wish somehow all this would go away. We could just treat each other with kindness and respect. Yeah, that's, that's a great hopeful reality, but the, at the end of the day, we have all not only been offended by other people for, other, for the most part, but we have also played the offender. And this is the cycle. This is the horrible cycle that we're in. And take that up to another notch, another level. All of humanity and life and society as a whole is created by God who is this designer, this artist, who intended for all of it to look beautiful. Yet all of us, in our sinful activities and our proclivities, we have vandalized God's good artistry. The offense that we feel oftentimes with others moves upwards vertically to God. 
there's been a breach, a brokenness, a distance that's happened between us and God. And here's the amazing thing. The way the Bible would describe this is that all of our souls have been and become and are defiled. And yet the hope of the gospel is that God comes and announces, I'm going to undo that all. I'm going to remove that. I'm going to purge that. It's going to be uh, re, uh, washed away, cleansed. It's going to be purified. Your soul that's filled with funk and disgustingness and defilement and being soiled, all of that will be purged and cleansed and washed, purified, bleached. There's this image throughout the book of Revelation. If you've ever read that, you know it's filled with all sorts of incredible metaphors. But one of them, obviously, is this image of people around the throne of God dressed in white gowns. All right, so if you're a guy, if you've ever read the Bible in that passage, you're like, guys wearing dresses in white dresses. That's really weird. Why? It's a metaphor that images, that pictures, depicts the fact that even though we once were stained in our garments by our own sin, our own sinful proclivities, our own sinful actions, that God has taken upon himself to wash and cleanse and purge our souls. It's amazing. This is one of the benefits of what it means to be accepted. No relationship. No relationship you have can match or rival this relationship with God. I've been married for going on 26 years, this year, 26 years, and my wife's insanely forgiving, incredibly forgiving. Um, I'm not the most easiest guy to, to live around, surprise, um, to be partnered with. But my wife is incredibly compassionate and loving and kind. I'm thankful for her. And even that, there are moments as incredibly passionate and even keeled as she is. We oftentimes have these jokes because in our house, my wife's like this and I'm, I'm, I'm like this. Right? I don't know how it is sometimes with other relationships, but oftentimes it, I, I, hear, I hear that women can sometimes be like this. But not in my house. It's like the inverse, right? It's, it's like my wife is like this, maybe like once in a while. Me, it's like, all right. But my wife is incredibly patient. But even in light of that, there are times when she reaches her, her, her point. It's tough. Here's the thing with God. It never, he never ceases, never stops. This is the type of God that he is. This is what it means to be accepted by God, that God doesn't just turn a blind eye from your sin and your brokenness and your stain and your defilement. God actually lifts it off of you and brings it upon himself. It's different. It's different than just simply ignoring it or turning a blind eye. It's God lifting it off of you upon himself. That's the cross. That's what it means for Jesus to die. It's not God turning a blind eye. It's God actually absorbing it upon himself so that we who were defiled and he who was perfect and pure bore our defilement and in exchange gave us his purity. It's incredible. It's just what Martin Luther described as this great exchange, that God exchanged our sinfulness for his purity and loveliness. So next thing we see is it also involves belonging to a new family. Belonging. This, this idea, the concept of belonging is a huge one because, again, like I mentioned at the very beginning, that for the most part, all of us, we're kind of driven by this idea of, like, who's my crew? Who do I hang with? Who are my people? Who do I associate with? Who are the ones I want to associate with? Not just the ones that kind of adopted me, but do I really want to hang around them, right? We've all been around that. And it all like, starts at like third grade, right? 
where you start beginning to discover there's this thing called a pecking order, right? So where you are on the blacktop, where you are at lunch, and who you eat lunch with will then begin to distinguish you from the rest. So you're either going to be lined up as a jock or whatever. I and mean, once you get into high school, it's like it gets more diversified. You got like surfers and jocks and cheerleaders and people who like listen to punk music and all of these like different layers and levels of people and it never stops because the older you get the more you get into this world the more you develop these nuanced levels of groups and communities and connectedness it's still all the same thing so here we are as adults we're still trying to figure out where's my place of belonging Who who are my people where's my family and what happens is oftentimes in this quest to try to determine who do we belong to and who are my people and who do I want to let and allow into my life, we at some point who have deeply been hurt by alienation, we end up alienating people ourselves. So again, like I said, it goes back to that like victim slash victimizer cycle that we all engage in. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel does, comes and God says, I accept you. And you who are outsiders, you who are once far alienated, distant from me because of your sins, because of your rebellion, because of your uh, disconnectedness from me and you're choosing to not follow my ways, God says, I'm going to go to you as an outsider. I'm going to bring you in and give you all the benefits of what it means to become part of my, my family. So Acts chapter 15 verse 9 says this, he made no distinction between us and them. This is what Peter's describing. Is that like God, God's not a... Uh, He's not a respected person. So what that means is that God does not look at someone just because they're rich and be like, ah, I'm going to go hang out with them, go spend time with them, invest time with them because they're somebody that I want to be and connected with. I want to, I want, you know, that's the way we oftentimes work. It's one of the reasons why in the early church, the book of James is this like incredible book where he writes and he says, look, if you see somebody who's rich who comes into your gathering and you give them the best seat, and then you see the poor, you see the poor person that comes walking in, and you're like, hey, why don't you sit right back here? It's like in the closet, all right? What he's saying is that you are showing a sense of respectableness to people. You're respecting those that have something to give back to you. And you're disrespecting those that have nothing to give back to you. But James, as he rebukes him, he says, this is not how you should act because this is not how God acts. Because how does God act? Well, God goes out after people that have nothing to add to him. So let me ask you this. Are you an asset or a liability to God? <laughs> Are you an asset or a liability to God? All right? All right, if you're like, I'm, I'm an asset. Like, pff, I've always felt that way. I'm an asset to whatever team. Like, like, at the end of the day, all of us are liabilities to God. All of us. Like, for God to actually entrust his sacred, holy name to a bunch of people that fail and flop and have high expectations and high anticipations, and yet we oftentimes fail to deliver. You know, he keeps pouring out over and over and over again, grace upon grace upon us. God must be full of this regenerating cycle of love to which he just keeps giving upon us because he knows that we're going to fail him over and over again. But this is the reality. Why would you do this? Because God brings us into a place of belonging. We belong to him. And what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament is kind of the working this concept out. Like, what does it mean that God has accepted and brought into this family people that were once outsiders? Paul begins to kind of work this into this theology throughout the book of Romans. He says in 10 verse 12, he says, There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. It's the same Lord over the rich 
and over all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's that big word, whosoever. Like, who does this uh, define? Anybody. Anybody that calls upon the name of the Lord. They will be saved. And then Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ. And to us, we might read this and be like, what's he talking about? Well, in the first century, if you were to read that, this would have profound impact upon you because, again, that culture, just like our culture, there's a pecking order. And the pecking order in that culture was men. It's a patriarchal society, so men are at the top of the food chain. The men are the one that have the power. The men are the one that have the authority. The men are the one that have the very specific rule and leadership within that family. And you don't challenge, you don't question, you don't compromise. You just abide by and therefore, it was likely within household for women to be treated in, in great disrespect and very uh, large level, large degree, like improperly. And so what was happening in the early church is all of these social constructs were being imported into this community of Jesus' people. And what Paul is basically saying is he's saying, no, 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 that whole, the whole social construct out there within Rome and within the culture at large it stops at the door of our community. Because in our community, there is no Jew, there is no Greek. In other words, uh, God is, is not looking at the color of one's skin and saying, I like Jews way better than Gentiles. I'm really far more into these people that are natural, born sons of Abraham than I am in those that are not. God is not someone that shows favoritism to people. Nor is God saying that uh, men are better than women. He's saying that there is no male nor female. The idea is that all are one in Christ. The whole pecking order has been turned on its head. It's turned upside down. What God is saying is that the marginalized, the outsider, the outcast, they are part of my family. As a side note, Christians should be the most welcoming, loving, tolerant, if I can even throw out that word, in the way of accepting people for who they are, what they're like, no matter what type of religious background or differences or distinguishes them from us, most accepting of all people. It doesn't mean we have to live by or imbibe anything else. It just means that there's a sense of loving and acceptance, kindness, generosity, hospitality to all people. Because that's exactly what God did with us, isn't it? Like none of us were... Theologically sound Bible scholars when we came to Jesus. All of us, the way the Bible is going to say, is that we were actually in our sin, and while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. So, how did God accept us? <laughs> how did He bring us in? While we were still in rebellion against this God. That's the type of grace that God describes, displays, and shows. One final thing I'll say about this, and I'll read a passage and I'm done. Is the idea that we see here is that. This family that we're brought into, as you walk as a follower of Jesus, I like to think of it this way. Your understanding of who is part of your family should actually grow. If your understanding of who you accept shrinks, I think you're going backwards. Here's what I mean by this. Paul the Apostle uh, started off as a Jew. Paul started off with a very small circle of people that he would accept and allow into his life. Because Paul was part of this elite group of theologians called Pharisees. Uh, even there were Jewish people that Paul would look at and be like, ah, yeah, they're Jews, but they don't live in a consistent way of Judaism in which I find acceptable, in which God finds acceptable. So Paul would not enter 
uh, allow others to enter into his life and show hospitality to other people. As Paul gave his life to Jesus, his boundaries were blown off. I mean, Paul literally was able to sit down at some point later on in his life with people that were non-Jewish, people that would have eaten food that Paul would have found repulsive 15 years or so earlier. People that Paul would have looked at and been like, you are going to hell. But now Paul is like, you're my brother. You're my sister. And I love you. And we're one in Christ. As followers of Jesus, our ability to sit down with people that see things in this world from a vastly different perspective than us should never consistently become something that drives us away from people. But as we grow in our understanding of Christ, what happens is we should allow ourselves to expand because that's what the gospel does. It expands our ability to love those even that are unlovely, those that are even our enemy, those that are even very vastly different than us because is that not exactly what God did for us? He loved us even while we were vastly different from him. Our mind was nothing like his mind. Our thoughts were nothing like his thoughts and yet he accepted us in Christ. And by accepting us, his love begins to transform us into new people. He changes our desires. Now let me finish with a passage, Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just finish and we'll wrap this up. Paul starts off and says, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles, you were in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is now called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh, uh, made in flesh by the hands. So he's referring to the fact that you, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, you are once part of this community of people that were outsiders. But Paul is going to go on to describe that now God has done something. In verse 13, he says, But now in Christ, you who are once afar off, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. In other words, God did something. God intervened. God brought you near. And he says, By abolishing the law, the commandments, and he is our peace. And he has broken down this middle wall of division that is between us. Because this is what God does. He brings us into this new family. And I want to finish with this thought. This, this is what the gospel does. It welcomes us. And when it welcomes us, it begins to re-transform or change, say, our hearts to become hearts and desires that are like God's. See, a lot of times when Christians say, the only way that we will accept you is if you begin to change and start acting and looking and talking and thinking and dressing like us, then we'll accept you. That's moralism. That's not the gospel. That's basically looking at someone saying, my groundwork, my basis for acceptance of you is based upon how you live in accordance with the way I think you should live. That's what morality is all about. Moralism is all about. The gospel says, I will accept you no matter who you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how distinct, how different, how much I even disagree with you because this is exactly what God did for me in Christ. Because it transformed me and changed me. And turn me into brand new people. Now for some of us, that's really hard. Because we've been brought up within a context where we have placed other things prior to this gospel order. That the, we put other things, other markers of acceptance prior to the gospel. And yet, this is what the story of the gospel is all about. One final thing, I'll finish with this, is this story of the prodigal son. You guys are all familiar with that. Remember that story? The young son, or the younger son, uh, basically asks the father for his inheritance, which is in kind of that ancient culture. The father is like this head patriarchal master slash king of the family. You don't question him. Uh, you don't contradict him. You just simply submit to him. 
and this younger son says, I want my inheritance, which is basically another way of saying, I want you to die so I can get everything that's coming to me. It's, it's, let's put it this way. It's, it's not nice. It's not nice. So in the story, Jesus is saying this young man ends up getting his inheritance. Shocking. The, the father gives him what he's asking for. It's a big shock. The son goes out, squanders it, ruins it, messes up his life. And yet Jesus says while he was, he, was, he recognizes, he remembers that he has he's lost his place within the family. And, and he, he sees himself as an outcast, as an outsider. And at some point, he begins to realize, I, I want to come back home. And Jesus says this incredible story about the father. When the father sees him, yet from a far off distance, begins to gather together a robe and the fatted calf. You guys know the story. And then he begins to run to this prodigal or wayward child. So again, in the context, what the son did is the son completely shamed the father. In an honor culture, you don't shame your father. If you shame your father, you can be uh, dismantled, you can be removed from your family, disowned. In some shame cultures, uh, even we see today, you can be killed. Um, And that happens even today. And this son shamed the father. And yet the shamed father actually runs to the son and welcomes him, and honors him. So what you have is the father literally exchanging the shame that he incurred from his rebellious son, and in exchange gives the son honor. This is the gospel. This is the good news, that we have a God that hasn't abandoned or rejected or turned his back on us. We have a God that has been shamed by us, and yet in exchange for the shame that we've given to him, he's given us honor by accepting us, by forgiving us, by giving us a place of belonging. This is what the good news is about. And how do you receive it? Trust. Faith by grace. Through faith, you are saved. You trust this God. Final question. You can have the worship to come up right now. That's my way of saying I'm actually done is you trust him. You trust this God. Trust is the big issue that we often have to wrestle with. The question is, how can you trust this God? And the answer, I think, the New Testament always points back to, resoundingly, over and over and over again, is the cross. We can trust this God because of the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? If, if this God, this creator of all things, all things... Why was he there on the cross? Why was he not in some other distant, alternate, parallel universe on that day? Why? Why on the cross that day, that time, as a human? And Paul's answer to that is, even though he could have been anywhere, he chose to be in that zone, in that spot, because that was the place whereby our God would suffer alongside us, taking upon himself the very shame that we have soiled this world and our lives and others with. He's lifted it. So those who trust him enter into this relationship of being washed and cleansed and renewed and welcomed and redeemed. That's what the Bible describes, redeemed. That's what it means to be made new. So my invitation to you is to trust this God.